Hi, it's Gillian here from Irish Funds. Today, we are bringing you the next episode in our series of recordings from the Irish Funds 10th Annual UK Symposium, which took place on November 30th in London. This episode features a panel discussion entitled Success Stories in Distribution, which is moderated by Dominic Kramer of Haven Green, Jane Rogers of Rathbones PLC, Richard Kelly of LGIM, Nick Emmons, an independent non-executive director, and Lindsay Gold of Bailey Gifford Europe. The panel discusses key trends, how to navigate the regulatory environment, and what it takes to successfully distribute investment funds from their personal experiences. The panel also provide predictions on what to look out for in 2024 and beyond. We hope you enjoy this episode and be sure to keep an eye out for further podcasts coming soon. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, yes, uh, this was, a, uh, I think, quite an interesting um, Broadridge analysis or, and snapshot of, of the year to date. Um, but before we get stuck in, just a couple of introductions. Um, I'm going to start off with myself and then ask the panelists to introduce themselves. My name is Dominic Kramer. I work for Haven Green. We're a Dublin-based MIFID-licensed uh, fund raiser. So we help managers raise funds across the EU 27 and the UK, uh, a couple of countries outside of that as well. Um, I don't know, Jane, do we want to start? Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Dominic. Uh, Jane Rogers, I'm Executive Chair of Rathbones Asset Management and um, Group Distribution Officer for the group. Hi, all. Uh, my name is Richard Kelly. I'm the Head of Distribution for uh, Legal in General in, in Ireland. Um, I suppose I work on the European Institutional Team where we, uh, I suppose, use a number of our um, platforms that are based out of our, our Dublin Manco. Hi there, I'm uh, Nick Emmins, I'm a non-exec director. I sit on fund boards for Lazard Asset Management and Premier Might and Investors. Hi there, I'm Lindsay Gold. I'm a non-exec director and former CEO of Bailey Gifford Europe. Uh, we're a Dublin-based uh, manco with USITS, AIF and Mifid top-up permissions. And we've got distribution um, branches set in Frankfurt, Zurich, and Amsterdam and various distribution agreements and intermediary agreements as well. Brilliant, thank you. Um, yes, just referencing the report we, we heard uh, just now, uh, there's quite a lot to unpick, whether it's uh, passive versus active, fixed income versus equity, maybe the death of uh, uh, mixed assets, uh, a, a whole lot of gems hidden in there. Um, keen, keen to hear from, from you, from the panelists on uh, your own experience in the past 12 months, uh, what we've just heard, is, is that what was reflected in your experiences or were there any sort of outliers where you, know, you, you bucked the trend? Jane, do you want to start? Sure. Um, you know, look, it has been a, a very difficult year for active management. If you look where the flows have gone um, across the UK and into Europe, it's certainly been into, into the passive space. 
um, clients have been challenged um, with regard, obviously, to interest rates, inflation, and then you mix into that the political uncertainty we've had across the world. You've seen this risk off trade. Um, and, and Rathbones is an active asset management firm, um, and we have a number of strategies that, that across the piece in terms of asset allocation. So if we look at um, what we have done in terms of flows uh, over the year, we've actually fared pretty well given the challenges on the active space. What we've found is that um, where clients have been taking risk off and, and going into cash, short duration, what we've done well in is in our ethical bond fund and in our multi-asset strategy where we're um, uh, targeting either total return or infl inflation plus targets. And clearly that, that has become increasingly challenged in this inflation world that we're in. Um, but, but I think what's important, I think that was alluded to in, in the... Um, the report from Broadridge is around the importance, and I know we'll touch on this later on in the panel, around client service. You know, so how do you differentiate yourself in what is a highly quantitized market? It is very much around being very close to the client, and especially during times of turbulence, uh, they can be difficult conversations, uh, but I think that's really fundamentally important in terms of building the strength of, of uh, relationships with our clients and retaining them and, and getting their trust. So that, I think that's something that we've done across the business from a distribution perspective, is making sure that we are out in front of clients and speaking to them. Yeah, I, I suppose we're lucky in legal in general that you know, we're a very large company, so we have a lot of different asset classes that we can use at times. And I, and, and I suppose what we've been doing over the last number of years and, and our regulator fund structures have really helped is not only diversify the asset classes that we have, but actually the channels that we're able to work in as well. So what we saw um, over the last 12 months is that really starting to help and diversify and protect the business somewhat. So if I maybe just very quickly from a, an asset class perspective, what, what our flows look like is very similar to what Broadbridge said, actually, in fairness, especially in the wholesale side with multi-asset funds um, and kind of our thematic equities really suffering. But you know, we have quite a good fixed income, both passive and active. Uh, and to Jane's point, we saw decent inflows there, and that was very much across our European business. Um, in our institutional side of the house, we've, we've always had a really strong um, AFI business. Um, last number of years, no one was surprised where, where yields were, our, our active credit wasn't of interest, the, just the asset class was out of vogue. But what we saw last year, and, and thankfully the RFPs are coming in now, is, is a really positive return to Euro credit, and that's really help, helped our flows as well. So it's been really great to have that diversification. And, and listen, in the UK, we've obviously seen outflows because of the LDI. So it's been a really broad, uh, you know, and, and interesting year from, from, from a flows perspective. Uh, I won't talk specifically about the firms that I'm uh, a NED for, but what I would say is that I talk to heads of distribution around, around the UK market. Life has been horribly tough this year with the odd uh, specialist uh, exception. Uh, and I don't think many of them seeing it becoming uh, a great deal easier as we go into 2024. There would certainly need to be uh, a, a catalyst of, of change. Cash has obviously become a, uh, a competitive uh, asset class uh, over the last year. One thing I would pick up on, though, and it aligns to the um, presentation before this panel, was the focus on uh, making sure you have the best possible relationship with your clients. And I think in tough times, I would reiterate that, and I know most of the asset managers I speak to are very much focused on ensuring their relationships are as good as they can possibly be uh, with the fund selectors and wealth managers they work with. 
Uh, I would also echo what Jane was saying. So we are, we are an active manager uh, with a growth uh, style bias. So we've certainly seen, seen headwinds in, in 2023 that's been, has been challenging. In terms of trends, 2021, our fund flows, our Irish usage were really strong. We probably had about 4 billion net flow in. Uh, 2022, broadly net flat. 2023, we have seen outflows and very similar to, to the Broadridge report. Um, I think in terms of um, the, the headwinds we're in, um, not to mention another name, Morningstar rather than Broadridge, but I did see a quote. Uh, they, they had a report that said there was one trillion net outflow for active mutual funds in 2022. So that's what we're, we're facing into. Um, What's been successful for us this year, uh, again, a bit like James, our sustainable emerging market bond fund has seen a lot of net inflows. Um, another success for inflows has been our responsible global income fund. But um, in terms of our, our general growth equities, um, global growth equities, they, they've, been, they've been challenged. So uh, I, I think that's probably the, the broadest piece. Um, beyond that, um, I think there's some challenges around, um, you know, what 2024 looks like, as Nick says, and, and it might be somewhere, I might, there might be a further questions, Dominic, on yeah. that. But uh, I think until global inflation is dealt with, interest rates come down, our growth style is probably going to still be out of favour until, mm. until that turns. Mm. Before, I, I mean, a couple of things came, came through. What I've heard is, you know, as a, as a way to lesser response, but one of the reasons for, for sort of getting through this year so far has been diversification, I heard. Um, some innovation, because some products aren't right for the cycle we're in. Uh, and what comes through clearly also is relationships, strength of these, and client service. And I think we can unpack that a bit uh, just now as well. But if we just quickly still stay with the Broadridge report, just, you know, uh, anyone wants to maybe comment on is there anything in that report in terms of trends that sort of keeps you awake at night where you say that's not something that's going to be just resolved by diversification or strong relationships? This is a worry to business in general. Is there anything that, that worries you? I'll, I'll just kick off. <laughs> uh, the, the rise of passive, obviously, for, for an active manager, mm. um, that's, that is a worry for us. Um, we think we have an edge with our real actual investing in our active growth strategies, but you see the, the passive numbers. The ETF market, we heard a panel earlier, which was quite interesting. Um, so the, the, the kind of active ETFs might be an interesting space to watch that development, but um, I'd be lying if I said that didn't keep me awake at night. Thank you. I think the, uh, I think the thing that would, uh, would concern me if I was out there as a running distribution for uh, an asset manager would it came out in the board report it's this idea of a consolidation of who fund buyers actually are who fund selectors are uh, and obviously you want to build deeper relationships with those but I think again in the UK here we will continue to see consolidation in terms of the providers of wealth services through to end investors therefore if you're a winner in that market you tend to be a bigger winner but if you're not a winner in that market then you end up as a bigger loser uh, and I think if uh, that would be 
strategically, I think that would be my biggest concern going forward into 24 and beyond, actually. Mm. Okay, thank you. Well, besides my four kids, which keep me up at night quite a lot, um, I, I, I have plenty of time to think about things as well uh, in terms of the market. So, you know, for my clients, a lot of them are dealing with huge issues over the last couple of years. And you have to remember that as a distribution guy as well. While we might have our own problems, actually, it's our clients and, and it's having that trusted relationship that we all kind of envy. So a lot of what we've done over the last couple of years is, is literally just, you know, work with them. A, a lot of that means day-to-day -day reporting, ESG queries, solving the day-to-day -day queries that they're getting, because I, I work with a lot of fiduciary providers in my day-to-day. My -day. Um, but, but that actually really works in the, in the long term, because in, in those tough times, it, it's, it, it's really meaningful. But what I do worry about is, is another shock to the system, because what we've gone through the last couple of years, pe people are just coming out of it now. And you're starting to see it turn. I don't know if everybody's feeling it in the room, but it definitely feels better in the last couple of months. And, you know, God forbid another unknown unknown happens. I really wonder what that looks like. And, and, and that's something you can't prepare for. Um, but it's definitely a concern we would have, yeah. Hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh, can I just, I, mean, I think um, one of the things that's come, came out today is that it's actually slightly comforting in a way that actually a lot of the things we've talked around, a lot of the panels and, and we're talking about now in terms of concerns, are actually widespread concerns across the industry. If I go through my list of things that keep me awake at night, there, there's, there's a lot. Um, and I think a lot of that is around you know, the regulatory pressures that we're all feeling um, across the UK, Europe, um, and how that is impacting our business models. You know, how do we maintain competitiveness? What's happening to our pricing? What's happening to our margins, et cetera? And, and that point around being close to the client, uh, whilst we have a lot of other exogenous factors going on that are impacting the business model, I, th I think is, is um, a, a concerning one. Uh, one of the slides that I liked in the last presentation, Broadridge, was around um, the which is an internal piece, is around how distribution sits within the group um, or within the firm and how closely entwined it has to be with marketing and client insights um, rather than just being a sort of function that is um, on execution only. And I think that's really important how the model needs to evolve going forward if we think about the importance of being close to the client and you have consumer duty, et cetera. So how are we addressing what our clients are telling us what we're hearing, the consolidation that's happening in the marketplace, and how do we filter that back in to what we're actually doing rather than just in a push mentality. And that actually for some organizations is, is I think is a bit of a challenge because it's getting everyone around the business to think in a very client-centric way, which, which, um, which can present a number of challenges. Dominic, can I just come in on that? Because it's a really well, good point. We just released a survey in Ireland on DC members and, and what they would invest in, right? And, and mm -hmm. to Jane's point about the marketing side is, what comes through is that members of DC schemes want ESG, so everything that was in the previous two panels, right? They, they really want it, but actually, and they're willing to pay for it, okay, which is really important. Some actually said they'd even suffer performance, which I was surprised at, but, but that, was, uh, that was interesting. But actually what jumped out is that the managers need to be able to tell that story in a really positive mm. way. So the fact that we might do a really good job and think we're great actually isn't good enough. It, it's working with your marketing team, actually getting that out there, explaining to your end investor what you're doing on their behalf. And, and it's mm. really important that we work with marketing in, on, on yeah. those types of, of, of issues. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Uh, sales is not execution only. Mm. That resonates a lot. Um, 
So taking uh, you know, two, 2023, which I think was characterized also as by some leaders as uh, finding themselves second-guessing uh, developments, how, how does one re then plan with any sense of certainty or confidence 12 months ahead into, into the end of 2024? I don't know who wants to have a first stab at that. I was searching for my crystal ball there for a minute. <laughs> um, but I, I think, as we mentioned earlier, that it, and there has been a bit of a bounce uh, um, in the last um, couple of months, but is it a dead cat bounce or is it sustainable? Um, I think until rates start coming down, we might see a similar pattern at the beginning of the year. Um, OECD and others, uh, economists brighter than myself, are talking about rates coming down maybe in middle of the year and people are talking about May, June. I think we are really in crystal ball territory at that point. So. Um, you know, the fund selectors, fit certainly for growth equities, are a kind of wait-and-see approach. It is risk-off, as Jane mentioned. Um, but we could see that turn. There could be a pivot depending on when interest rates start um, retracting from their, their kind of higher-for-longer situation. Um, meantime, back to the Broadridge report, we have been spending time on our brand profile uh, and the, the brand awareness that was mentioned. We, we do a campaign on actual investors and we've been rolling that out in Europe. That was more of a UK uh, campaign. And also to the client service piece, um, we're trying to do a lot of work on digital. Uh, I think it's important to be able to make it easier for your end consumer, your end customer, so we've been investing in a digital offering, whether that's for client reporting, whether that's for uh, self-service for clients and getting hold of marketing capital that, that we have on our website or whatever. So um, it's being able to do the other things really well when performance is perhaps challenged by, by markets. And we think our growth style um, is currently, you know, there, there's a different valuation attached to where we think those those disruptor companies can be in the future. So it could be a future buying opportunity when the, when it turns um, and people will come in at lower valuation. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with uh, everything you said there. I think that catalyst of uh, a change in the interest rate cycle will, uh, will be the thing that's most likely uh, to make a change towards investor sentiment. You know, what I hear from uh, the wealth management sector here is the, the clients are actually taking assets out of their wealth manager's uh, control. And so it's not just um, money not going into individual funds, it's actually money leaving uh, the sector altogether, which is slightly, uh, slightly worrying. My sense is uh, if the right catalysts do come to play, then that will reverse uh, relatively quickly. Um, I think the other thing, I think we're going to touch on it uh, a, a bit more. The other thing to think about, again, it's quite specific here, is the impact of consumer duty because that's encouraged managers to really focus on uh, their relationship all through the value chain and not just with the the fund buyer uh, and the um, uh, the fund selector who they would spend their day-to-day -day job on. And I think that's a I think managers, despite the fact that consumer duty has been uh, a very time-consuming project for most um, asset managers over the last year, uh, ultimately it will reap benefits for relationships uh, longer term. 
from an Elgin perspective, for the last couple of years, and I would have said something similar last year, we, we've been investing heavily across Europe. Um, we had, a, I think I was one of three people initially on the European sales teams. We're now up to about 25 on the institutional side, and, and we probably have 15 on wholesale. So we've been continuing to invest, which is a difficult decision in this kind of environment where, where flows aren't where you would expect them to be. So we've opened, opened offices in Switzerland. We've actually got, um, opened an office now in Singapore this year, and we're continuing expansion in, in Asia and in Europe further. Alongside that, um, and very relevant for today, we've been you know, uh, continuing to, to launch new products, looking at where the gaps are, especially in the active fixed income space. And, and one of our focuses for 2024 is, is continuing that development and actually on some of our ICAV uh, platforms as well is, is to launching those funds as well. Um, because we, we can't be driven by flows, right? But, but what we did learn over, over the last couple of years is, is by not having them, when clients needed them in a rising inflation perspective, is, is you know there's a lost opportunity there, right? So so we, we are driving driving that forward, and um, there there's a real focus on real assets, and externalizing a lot of the in-house and cap capabilities that we used to have to our parent company. Where there's a big um, push now for next next while in terms of, of the real asset solution for for legal and general clients across Europe, which is really interesting. And, and I saw the LTAF conversation this morning, and um, so so they're kind of the structural things because even though we're very much an index house, you know that very competitive out there in fees these days, right? So you, so you have to balance the books, and um, so there's a lot of focus on AFI, real assets, and then internationalizing the business going forward. Mm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of similar things happening on the Rathbone side, and I'm sure as many know in the room, we've, we bought the Investec Wealth business, so we are in the middle of, of a large integration and bringing that business across into, into Rathbones. Um, I didn't know when I joined Rathbones that we had such a great asset management business, and actually today uh, we've um, just rebranded the business as Rathbones Asset Management. And so one of the parts of my role is thinking about how do we really build out that asset management business and to the point around you know, product diversification and thinking about how do we you know, retain the integrity of what we are in terms of the investment philosophy and, and engine that we have there, uh, but also diversify you know, the business if, if I think about where we need to be going forward. Forward, um, and the challenges that that, that um, are are ahead of us, um, and so um, yeah. So I just think that, that you know, agreeing with the, with the, the points of the panel in terms of, of those challenges and wishing we all had a, a crystal wall for the future. Yeah. Well, it, it is fascinating because I think yeah. you know what I hear is there's also a bit of a a, a large player, small player, boutique player kind of dichotomy here yeah. that the large player can. Pre pre prepare by being geographically or product diversified or expanding into new products and, and new geographies. Um, one of the things we, we haven't touched on a lot yet is sort of the, the, the shift between private and, and public market or uh, liquid and less liquid uh, offerings. So we have a poll for, for the audience. Um, I think that goes on your mobile phone. Um, and we just wanted to pick up on one of the things coming through the report as well, that product innovation, product development was one of the key areas of successful firms. So the question we wanted to ask was, you know, how will your firm uh, be focus, uh, focusing their product development work uh, in, in the near term? More towards private market products or continuing uh, on the liquid market strategies, equities, bonds, mixed assets, etc. Let's give everyone a bit of time to give their responses. 
at least it's not 50-50. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly. <laughs> Who was that? Um, okay, so th yeah. this is interesting because, um, you know, this, um, a couple of years ago, I suspect, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the segmentation between public market players, liquid fund offering, and private market was quite distinct. And a conference such as this would have just had majority one of the players here. Um, but it does seem to be a better balance either between different firms or within one firm. Um, is there anything you guys would like to just comment on that? Uh, well, first of all, 55% to 45%. I thought it was a rerun of the Scottish uh, independence referendum <laughs> there. Um, but actually, private markets um, just edges it. And, and that's certainly an area yeah. that we see uh, an opportunity in. Um, from our investor portfolio manager perspective, we saw that a lot of our investee company universe was staying private longer, and we wanted to access that tail of the, the growth curve. Um, and that was probably going back 10, 12 years now. Our first investment was in Alibaba back in 2012. Um, so I think we see a real opportunity for private markets, and we've made it available to our clients through segregated mandates or through closed-ended vehicles just now. But at the start of this year for Bailey Gifford Europe, we were quite keen to see what appetite there was for, for private assets. Mainly, we're interested in the late-stage private assets. Um, so we did a bit of pre-marketing across Europe, and um, our intention is to set up a, a private equity fund, whether it's a GP, you know, general partner, limited partner style if, um, and we're looking at setting that up next year with a view to maybe raising assets and, and deploying capital in, in 2025. So it's certainly a, an area of interest. It's different stakeholders, so you have to work harder yeah. in Europe, um, but we do see there being an interest out there. Yeah, as, as you were speaking then, I was watching uh, those numbers change slightly and it nearly got to an equal point, but it's back at 54, 46 uh, now. Uh, as I talk to fund selectors around the market, uh, actually that reflects quite well um, the, the appetite. Clearly, more and more fund selectors have incorporated private markets um, strategies into their, their wider portfolios. Um, whether they're going to increase it a lot further, I, I don't know. And that, I suppose, to a certain extent, will depend on whether any of the things we've just discussed in terms of what are the catalysts for change in 24 actually materialise or not. Uh, if they don't, then I suspect the appetite for private markets will continue to drift upwards uh, amongst that big fund buying community. Those would, those would be my thoughts. Yeah, I suppose from an Elgin perspective, I'd expect the product developed to be about 50-50 between public and private or 2024. And, and that's a, probably a big change from where it has been before, which is more on the public side. Just an interesting stat for people. Um, on, on the survey we did before, a lot of the members who, who were talking about their financial situation were saying that they'd invest in infrastructure, solar panel, uh, wind farms, if it 
because they saw it changing the, the, the situation that they're in now. So they were talking about using their pension money to actually deliver growth and, and, and improve their situation. And, and that's something that's really interested us as one of the largest master trusts in, our, in, in the UK. We've big DC assets in, in the Irish market where I work as well. It's, but it's trying to find something for those DC members somewhat into the retail space. But how, how do we make those types of assets available, which have normally been to the large institutional houses, right? So that's something we're working really hard on to develop. I mean, look, the results don't, don't surprise me. I think from um, one, the trends in the industry and the challenges that, that clients have in meeting their investment outcomes and the efficiency, as I said in the beginning, in terms of passive allocations. And so the, the, the standard global plus two net of fees, you know, we, we all know that that, that increasingly is becoming um, very competitive or has been um, um, outbid in the market, you've got integration, et cetera, and buy-up of, of those types of funds. So I think there's the question around, well, where do clients actually get the alpha? If you think about where they're allocating their risk budgets and um, and their um, payoff profile per unit of, of, of risk, it is into the alternative space, um, and that is a, a huge diversified allocation that they can have. And so, um, and how do you do that? Um, and to, and you know, to your point around um, efficient, cheap, cheaper, more liquid allocations for clients versus you know, where normally you'd have the large institutional investors investing in that asset class. I think that, that's, a, that's a good development. I mean, we will be looking at things like alternatives within the asset management business to diversify our product offering, including thematic funds. But I think we have to be very careful, and I'm speaking this from my perspective, that, that, that when you, you don't just chase you know, what's happening in the industry. I think we have to revisit what's happening long term, where allocation of assets are going, and how you integrate those product development initiatives within the business, whether you're buying in teams, your white labeling, et cetera, and thinking about that from a product distribution perspective and also from a cultural perspective, actually, uh, if you're buy buying in teams. So it's, it's a real challenge about diversifying product um, and then by extension, then the distribution channel uh, uh, out, to, out to clients. Yeah, there, there would be a lot to unpack there because mm. uh, it's probably something for a future mm. panel also between closed end or evergreen. Exactly, or, yeah, um, yeah. So that's quite interesting. I'd like to, because we're nearing the end, sort of just pick up on one or two other things. One, one was, you know, we've heard from sort of previous panels as well, discussions around ESG and, you know, one observes that, you know, over the last few years, you know, the industry's attention to ESG and sustainability is has increased and you know, a lot of attention being paid to that, but there's a tremendous amount of headwinds coming, whether it's just from the US or uh, other, other, other areas as well. I'd be keen to understand from, from the panel, um, how, how does your firm treat this? Is this just noise or is it a really a redirection of where ESG and sustainability is going? Um, do we just plow ahead or do, how do we adapt to, to that sort of headwind we're seeing? So I think from the regulatory perspective, um, you know, there's a couple of interesting angles on on the sustainability, sustainability and sustainable finance. Um, you know, it's clear some of the Broadridge numbers were suggesting that there's outflows um, and there's headwinds and there's difficulty, but it's absolutely here to stay. We've heard about COP28 kicking off, um, so it's it's more about how global distributors manage the differing regimes of disclosure for taxonomy, for um, all these different challenges. So the, the, the conversation that we had about having 
one strategy that you could sell globally, it's almost gone now. You've got model proliferation and you've got to have different disclosure requirements, whether you're um, selling into the UK, selling into Europe, whether you've got North America and Asia, always slightly different slices and dices of the same challenge. Um, so it was really encouraging to hear about um, global coherence of regulation and hopefully a convergence. But we do have differing, different um, naming and labeling regimes now in the UK under SDR. SFDR will probably change to reflect, but it will take some time. So it's navigating these challenges as global fund distributors and having different variations of documentation to, to face off to your different clients. Okay. Yeah, and I think, uh, again, what I see, um, clearly you've got that, that distinction between markets and how you disclose. But when you, you get down to the coalface and look at what's actually happening in asset management firms, certainly the ones I get involved with, what I see is a, is a continual drive to fully integrating ESG um, considerations, not only in funds that have an ESG objective attached to them, but across the whole investment process. So in the end, this becomes the norm and it's no longer a differentiating factor. So I think we'll look back in five to 10 years time and ESG factors will have been primarily integrated completely across the industry. I, I couldn't agree more, and, and I think the clients have brought us on a journey as well because they, they really upskilled themselves in terms of what it was. And at the very early days, you know, we could talk about an Article Eight versus an Article Nine fund, and, and they didn't really know and kind of believed us. Now they actually don't care because they know themselves, they know what they want, and, and actually, you know, they're looking at actually what are you doing as opposed to the label that's on it, right? So, so I think that that that's absolutely going to happen, and quite an interesting. Uh, tidbit that we had an, an Elgin, one of the mandates we won this year, quite a large one, a, a Nordic client, they gave us a portfolio of brown companies, which we didn't see coming. If you were talking about surprises of 2023, they were like, give us the worst ones that are out there. And we want you to engage with them and try and improve their ESG standards, right? So, you know, I, I, we weren't expecting that when we were sitting here this year to say what kind of funds we were going to be developing. But that's just, you know, that's impact, right? Because mm -hmm. the days of just picking Article 9 fund, everyone's good there, we're going to do that. They were like, no, we, we know they're the good guys, but we want the bad guys and we want to work with you to engage with them and, and to use their pull to do that. So, so I think the investor is getting a lot smarter uh, as, um, as this has evolved. Final words, Jane? Nothing really to, I think, I think the panel said it very well, so I'll... Um well, thank you, everyone. It was a very interesting panel, and thanks to the audience for participating. Thank you. Thank you.